creeds and criticism meet. Split Frame of Reference Podcast. Welcome to the Split Frame of Reference Podcast. I'm Nick. And I'm Allison. And today we're talking with uh, our friend Eugene Hung. Ow. Ow, sorry. Uh, he just Nick is being kicked by a little baby. Yep. So if you hear some crazy wailing you'll know what happened he's hiccuping right now but yes we have eugene on the podcast today that's about as much as i can get he's yeah he's starting to kick more sorry guys yeah so our baby is going through a a growth spurt and he is becoming a nightmare baby periodically he's not too bad right now actually i think i think he just wants to snuggle and he starts bridging though when he wants to get free um but yeah, so uh, we have Eugene here. He's going to be speaking on violence prevention in a campus and church context. And to give you guys a little bit of a understanding of, of him, uh, he's a seasoned pastor um, and a Dallas Seminary grad. He writes and speaks on gender, race, and violence. Um, and I think also parenting. Uh, he spoke at our last 2019 CBE conference as a plenary speaker. And he's also um, spoken at various colleges, anywhere from Biola to Cal State Long Beach. So he's kind of gets all over the place. Um, Also, he served as an educator for sexual violence prevention at UC Irvine in a nonprofit um, called Man Up. And he also is a teacher in public schools. And uh, I knew him initially from his blog, feministasiandad.com. And that's where I think it's more of a musings of a uh, advocate parent. So maybe he covers gender and um, racial justice issues. Hi, Eugene. Hey, Eugene. Welcome. Hey. Thank you. Appreciate y'all having me on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your general story, and then eventually how you got um, involved and passionate about uh, especially gender justice. So uh, my road to uh, becoming um, a women's rights advocate and a gender equality advocate has been very circuitous. Um, It's been, uh, I mean, I grew up in a very conservative church circles that were uh, very standard, very typical for uh, their views on um, women in the church, women in the home. Um, And that was for me growing up in Southeast Texas. And so it was reinforced both by the kind of the general culture also the like the church i grew up in the baptist school i went to and it was very um it was very you know women are permitted to do certain things but not other things and we'll say even fine line between women it's okay for women to share but not for them to preach or speak for instance and men are definitely god's appointed leaders for the home um, and for church, and some would say even in society, and that's what I grew up with. I think it was. I mean, some people see Dallas Seminary as being super conservative. I, at least when I was there, there was actually a lot more variety 
in mm. theological interpretation about the you know those passages that we often look to when we're talking about gender equality. Uh, there was a lot more variation than I expected to find or that people generally outside the seminary realize. And it was when I was there that I started to really rethink what I believed about those things. And part of that was the education I got at, at Dallas was uh, in, in terms of hermeneutics, in terms of theology, and in terms of learning to look at it for yourself. Kind of Dallas gave me the tools to figure out, well, you know, I don't think what I grew up hearing and believing and sort of taking for granted that that was really where I thought I needed to land or where I thought the Bible gives its weight to. So it was really there that I started to really rethink. And that was when I started also dating my now wife. Nice. And she had called me out on it too. She had said, hey, you know, so it's okay for a woman to share but not preach. Where do you get that? And I was like, I don't know. Where do I get that? It's I, that's just always what I've heard. Everybody's taught that, you know. And and how do I justify that? And so that was another spark of of motivation to really look at why I believed what I believed. And so kind of deconstructing and and building back together my theology of of uh, gender equality. And um, so that, uh, you know, I was a pastor. I started off as a school teacher, became a pastor for a dozen years. And um, then after my last church, which I left as a pastor eight years ago, then I got into uh, women's rights advocacy work and relationship and sexual violence prevention work. So I'm back teaching again, partly because they're, there are only so many jobs in the nonprofit and higher ed sector in in those fields, but um, I'm hoping to still, even as a school teacher again, to be able to use what I know and what I've experienced to be able to to speak to the issues. Just even you know, as a math teacher, it's not like these issues are come up naturally in my classes, but life happens, and so yeah. I've already had the chance to speak into. Uh, situations that have come up um, that students have told me about or that happened in school, things like that. Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of people don't realize that they think of these things as put in their boxes. Well, here's the advocacy box, or we're going to learn this on our training day, or, you know, we're going to go to this conference. Um, and really this is, this stuff happens in our everyday lives um, in ways that are uninvited. Um, yeah. And and for, for those, I mean, it's not like men and boys don't experience, right? you know, physical sexual violence. I mean, I think one in six boys is commonly um, understood to be the, the, the research statistic. But um, I think it's usually men who are slow to understand how how widespread and how common um, gender-based violence is. Mm. And I think that's part of why the church has struggled generally to respond to it because, uh, I mean, if, if more women were um, in areas of leadership and were more listened to and respected, taken seriously, um, the 
church would probably be, I think, responding more effectively and would have responded probably a long time ago. I think men, a lot of men, male leaders in church and Christian circles are kind of like, oh, this Me Too thing. Oh, I had no idea it was that bad. Mm. Uh, and really, that's kind of my own story. I didn't know it was that bad either. I, I thought I was a pretty sensitive guy growing up and, you know, um, back in college at the University of Texas, you know, at the end of the school night when everybody's leaving from the library, there'd be a big group of us from, you know, our campus Christian group and there'd be like sometimes 20 or 30 of us who would be studying, uh, well, studying in quotes because <laughs> not everybody was really studying. Um, but at the end, uh, a lot of us, us men would wait around for the women as the library was closing. It was like 11 o'clock at night and Austin, you know, being an University of Texas being a fairly open campus in a big city, Austin, and uh, the, us men, we would offer for our women friends to walk them back to their dorm, walk them back to their car, stuff like that. And I, I felt bad for my friends who were women that they had to deal with that. Uh, yeah, I felt bad that there was one incident I remember one year where a few of the gals. Uh, they were just, you know, Saturday afternoon, I think, walking through the parking lot at the school and some guy just exposed himself to them. And I, I felt, I felt bad for my friends who are women that they, that's a, that's a facet of life. But I thought, well, that's, that sucks. That's a terrible part of life. Um, but that's just kind of how, how it is. And yeah. I never really thought, well, maybe I can be part of making that better and working for societal change too. Uh, societal and institutional in terms of the society at large and institutional within uh, even ecclesiastical settings. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people have this understanding that, oh, well, it's just how it is. It's, this happens everywhere and just kind of not understanding that actually this doesn't have to happen. Um, it doesn't necessarily happen everywhere. Um, you can do something to change it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, um, and that's, I mean, we'll probably talk about this in the next several minutes, is just what what churches can do is also part of what I've learned about what churches can do is partly based on what I didn't do. Mm. Uh, what did I not know? What did I not see? Because I'm, I'm not like, it wasn't like I was especially enlightened about these things until really the last several years. Uh, after leading the pastorate and after giving more thought to these issues. Um, I mean, certainly my theological convictions were shifting 20 years ago uh, when I was in seminary, but in terms of just being more aware of how gender-based violence affects, especially women and girls, that's something that's been, you know, I, I haven't, you know, there are some people who have been activists in this space for a super long time, you know, voices crying in the wilderness and very few people listening to them. Yeah. And, and so I, I'm kind of coming into this stream of activists, both faith-based activists and people who who don't have a particular faith, who have been working on this for a long time, and they've been saying these things forever, that this is a crisis that doesn't feel like a crisis because it's been around for since the beginning of human history, uh, almost, that, uh, that there is relationship and sexual violence and especially that it affects women and girls and and uh, like you said Allison it's it's not something that has to be but we sort of accept that it is and 
um, it shouldn't it shouldn't be that way. Yeah. So. All right. Um, well, let me ask you this first question then. Um, what are sign, some of the signs um, for maybe some real potential for violence to occur, both in the context and maybe a person-to-person -person situation? Signs that violence can, is, is, is ripe. It's more likely, violence. yeah. More likely, okay. Um, it's so hard, I think, to tell in an individual context, like looking at a couple, yeah. um, you know, say a dating couple or whatever that, that there's violence that's likely to, to be, to, I mean, a lot of times the couples we look at and think, Hey, it, it's, I don't think it ever happened to them. We, we don't know. Mm. We don't know what happens you know, behind closed doors or um, I think often one sort of at least yellow flag, if not red flag, is is um, uh, obsessive and controlling personalities. Mm. Um, and sometimes in church settings, um, there is a potential for people to theologize that mm. and to to take um, you know the idea that women need to be submissive and follow the male partner that 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 is something that they kind of wave as a, as a, as a club sort of like, you know, I'm going to whip out these Bible verses on you and say that you're a bad Christian if you don't do what I say kind of a thing. And um, I think that's, that's part of, um, I'm, I'm certainly not here to say that everybody who's complementarian has, has a potential for being that awful in their personal relationships, but people who are awful in their personal relationships and who are from a faith-based background, they often lean on those things heavily to try to bring women in their lives to, to heal and to obedience to them, to mm. control and to... Um, I, I think I would say that um, folks who are... Um, I mean, uh, abusers and people who get caught say in doing um, like harassing women in their churches and 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 so on they they're there I mean a lot of times we think of people who are potentially violent in, from a gender-based standpoint as being kind of the creepy obviously creepy sort of you know weird isolated secluded um, kinds of folks and often often they're quite charming mm. often they're very outgoing um, and that's partly how we end up I think with so many people in leadership who end up getting caught whether you Bill Hybels or whomever they're very charismatic yeah and, and it's more like they're eventually and, caught <laughs> yes I mean over the course of years and um, because so many people love them mm -hmm. and part of it is they couldn't the people that love them and think they know them could never imagine that they would be capable of such a thing and then people who they victimized are like well nobody believes me because they all see this great person and so i think personality wise um, if you're there's no real one profile for uh, people who are abusive or who become violent whether it's harassment or whether it's you know sexual assault uh, but a lot of times, at least in um, church contexts, 
it seems like they've they've got a real charm and an outgoing personality and and uh, and sometimes they will lean on their theology as a means of trying to justify um, controlling uh, women around them. Uh, I think I would say that the larger context is usually one of uh, certainly lacking accountability, but accountability isn't isn't the end all be all. I, th I think it's great when churches decide that they're going to put windows on the office doors, mm. you know, so that in counseling sessions, there's at least some visibility, you know, somebody who's in there, what they're doing. But I think also it's um, a, a willingness to kind of um, not ask enough difficult questions to not an unwillingness to ask uncomfortable questions yeah um and over willingness to assume that things are okay uh, that it's never happened in our church before so you know it, we're, we're okay we're, we're not like those other churches so we don't need to do background checks on all our volunteers for instance mm -hmm. or um, we don't need to um, really be having um uh, just real good conversations with uh, among leaders as to uh, behavior that is uh, that is kind of suspicious, but that everybody sort of writes off as ah, that's nothing. Yeah, because they interpret of, it yeah in light of what they it says. So it's basically you're saying that they gravitate towards the narratives that they're that are more comfortable. I think so. I think so. And um, so that that. There's always there's always an environment that sets up the the rise of of folks that that um, like people in leadership who are sexually violent. They it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Mm. And um, true. There's always some kind of there's always some kind of enabling that happens. It may not be conscious. It may not be willful uh, in a more in a more explicit or overt sense. But it's usually there's usually, I mean, always people can look back and say, well, you know, this thing and that thing and this thing, oh, we should have put two and two together and connected the dots. Yeah, but then the question is, why didn't they? Like, and especially sometimes I'm thinking like, they're like, oh, we, we, we never, we, 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 we couldn't imagine so-and-so was doing this or that. It's like, yeah, but you know, this person came forward and told you this person. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes that, that line is kind of between conscious and unconscious bias. I don't know. It gets kind of blurred. I agree. I agree. There's a lot of unconscious bias. And again, that's kind of goes back to how I, mean, I said earlier, I think if we had more women in, in leadership, mm, then we would probably not be dealing with, I mean, I could be wrong, but we probably would not be dealing with sexual violence within the church as much as we still need to do. We haven't heard the half of it, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, regardless of, you know, tr you know, hashtag church too, or yeah. you know, things like that, that um, because men are often the ones in leadership. So we, I think we're sort of conditioned to somewhat be skeptical of women's stories. Yes. Oh, there they go again. They're emotional. They overly interpret things. And there's sort of this chauvinism misogyny that is sort of, it, it, it's bred into us. It's just part of growing up in this culture, and we bring that into 
other institutional settings like the church. And so it's, it's and then we, we tend to think too of, I think lack of training is also um, an issue in terms of kind of creating an environment that is ripe for, for relationship violence. It's yeah. because, I mean, how many churches have we heard of that something happens in their church and they hear of a report and they don't go to the police, which, mm. which they, they, ha they, I mean, they have to do in terms of if the victims are, are under the age of 18. Um, but, you know, even when they're not under the age of 18, they, and they don't have to go to the police, then they, they try to, you know, let's, let's try to treat this in, um, you know, we need to treat this in a Matthew chapter 18, very strictly sort of manner. You know, you go to the person, then take a couple witnesses, uh -huh. and then you know, church discipline, all that. And um, it's it's something where we kind of slavishly follow that and end up accomplishing very little. Yeah. Uh, in terms of, and other people get hurt. And um, I think the I, I think so often, and I, I don't think pastors do this on purpose, but I think a lot of ministers, especially male pastors, are sort of like, well. You know, elder so and so is accused of, of uh, you know, touching, you know, sister so and so. Uh, you know, even if, is it if the grown adult who's been victimized, and so well, he said, she said, oh, I gosh. don't know. You know, what what do we do with that? And they're both very trusted. They've both been in our church for so long. They're both very beloved. It would cause incredible disruption and pain to to take this any further. So let's let's just. You know, get people together, have them forgive each other, yeah. and then let's just move on, right? Yeah. In other words, it's not really objective. <laughs> they're, they're um, it's, I mean, it's, it's very, <laughs> I think um, one thing that, I mean, this, it, this is, this is kind of tricky. It's, it may sound like it's, it's biased, but I think it is actually more of a corrective mm. than it is a bias. I, I think we need to, when, when people come forward and talk about being sexually assaulted or raped, we have to give them the benefit of the doubt. Mm. Um, I mean, research bears out that, you know, 92 to 98%, I've seen different studies, but 92 to 98% of all reports of, of sexual violence are, are borne out to be true. Yeah. False reporting is a rare occurrence. It happens. And it's terrible that that happens, but it's it's rare. And so so often I think men in leadership in the church are like, well, you know, he said, she said, eh, you know, <laughs> um, God give us wisdom and we don't know any better. And so, you know, it could be a false report. And, uh, but uh, it's like, well, I think we have to start giving the people who come forward the benefit of the doubt and then you still need to check things out. And, um, but I think part of that is church leaders learning about the nature of trauma and mm -hmm. how inconsistencies in story are, are actually very common. Um, it's That's part of the nature of trauma is for there to be selective memory and kind of reinterpreting and reframing of memory and things like that. And that's something that so many, especially men, are just not you know, aware of. We don't sit around and, you know, just even, you know, if you ask a group of, men and women um yes in the co-ed group i i you know jackson katz who's a i don't know that he's faith-based but he's he's a very well-known um, speaker author 
teacher professor, I think, on gender-based violence issues. And he says he'll take a group of men and women in a co-ed setting and he'll ask all the women, okay, uh, raise your hands if you do something on a daily basis to keep yourself from being sexually assaulted. Mm. And then they'll make a list on the board. And there'll be like a zillion things. Like, you know, I know exactly where I'm going at this time of, you know, especially at this time of night. Um, I have somebody to walk with me. When I'm walking to my car, I have my keys a certain way in my yep. hand so I can use it as a weapon. Um, I'd be sure some women will not tie their hair in a ponytail because they don't want it to be easier to grab. Uh, they carry pepper spray and all that. And then you get to, you turn to the men and say, how many of you do something every day to keep from being sexually assaulted? And it's usually like crickets. <laughs> and, and I think the, the existence is so different between men and women and it's so baked into our everyday sort of assumed lives um, that we don't re-examine. It shouldn't be that way. Yeah. And we, and for, for male leaders in churches, we have got to change our, our whole framing of, of these issues to give people who come forward the benefit of the doubt to say that, you know, until evidence proves me otherwise, I need to believe that what they're saying. Um, so I know to some folks that can sound like, well, you're just taking the victim's side. Well, I think overall we've tended very heavily to not take the victim's side yeah. for, you know, forever. Especially if you and, say you're not going to take a side, it's all he said, she said, it means you're not going to act on a report. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I mean, I, Sometimes the, 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 this is stepping outside the church setting. It's, it's sort of like the whole discussion about Title IX yeah. from an education standpoint. Yeah, and, Title IX. You know, right, the whole Secretary of Education currently, she, wants to, she feels like she wants to bring a corrective and bring things more into balance. And that's a legitimate point of view. It's, and I, I disagree with that. But I think what she's missing is that um, it was never in balance to begin with. Yeah. We were still trying to find the balance and that pushing in more in favor of of um, you know victims and those who come forward that's that's more corrective and now bringing it back the other way takes us back into the skew towards the um, towards the what we call them on campus work the respondent those are, that's the accused uh, but you know it's just that's something that has to happen in church settings too and I um, again I, I feel strongly about it partly because of where I've been the last several years in terms of being an activist for women's rights and being a father to two daughters, but just also because of what I did not do for mm -hmm. all the years that I was a minister. Yeah, and do you think uh, this sort of stuff happening in church, kind of the he said, she said, or the downplaying of it, or this person's more beloved, so we'll take that person's side or whatever. Yeah. Um, do you think that arises out of, I mean, putting on our theology hats for a second, um, a diminished view of sin, ironically enough. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, I, I'm not, sh I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I, I can definitely understand how um, we. It's sort of like we. I don't know. I'm not a five pointer, um, but um, the, the the one thing that tends to get lost very quickly is the idea of depravity mm. um so that that it's like well if if you i mean for, so for me i um i know a lot more calvinist 
leading folks than Armenian leading folks. And, and so, you know, there are a lot of folks I know who are like four and a half pointers, whatever, right? And, and so it's like, well, practically speaking, uh, do we really believe that the human heart is capable of such deception? Yeah. And, um, you know, it, 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 uh, it seems like we kind of lose, lose some of that. And, and part of that's just, I think, built on the trusty buildup with people over the years. But um, I think part of it's the um, unwillingness to recognize the I don't, I, I, I don't, Nick, I don't know if it's so much in my experience seeing that there's a less serious take on sin so much as there's a less willingness to, um, to be okay with saying I was so wrong for so long and I oh. didn't see what was there. Because if you, if you say, well, yes, that person is guilty, then well, if you've known them for 30 years and you served with yeah. leadership with them for 30 years, then you are saying to some extent that you were part, part definitely part of the environment that gave rise yeah. to enabled that. So it's sort of, if there's anything, it's, you know, because we don't like to think bad of ourselves, right? We yeah, like that's, that's that we're, a good point. So it's like, it's not, I think we have to be okay with saying, I'm not a horrible person for missing these signs. Yeah, but I was duped. Uh, and maybe I, I even helped. Yes. <laughs> I, I was duped and I bear some responsibility for it. And um, and I think that's, to me, that's not so much a view of, a lesser view of sin so much as it's a lesser view of, it's an over, I guess you could say it's, it's a kind of the flip side of that. It's an overinflated view of myself mm. that surely I could not be so blind as to, as to see that. And um, so maybe, sense. maybe, maybe I'd see it more as the flip side of, of that same coin. Um, mm -hmm. But that's just, you know, from my limited experience. Um, well, because I, I, I mean, that does make sense, though, because like I'm thinking, I'm thinking my head now, um, the majority of people I know would be very compassionate towards someone who told them a tale of um, being assaulted or this or that um, until, you know, it touches on someone that they know. Yeah. And like, um, and uh, Griselle Med uh, Medina was, uh, when she was here talking about oh, yeah. spotting, yeah, pr predators, um, she was saying they will ingratiate themselves into the community pretty fast. So yeah. they'll shower people's gifts, attention and love. And then you hear this person that you thought was so amazing is actually into some really bad stuff. And yeah. What does that say about you? Yeah, and they <laughs> often have, and they often have support in the community. Right? Yeah, like, like because they're, because they're charismatic and charming, yeah. and and they have done good things. They have helped yeah. people in concrete ways, um, but they've also terrorized and traumatized, mm -hmm. you know, individuals and those networks. Uh, I mean, it's whenever these stories break open, you always find more people then there's always it's never just one yeah um, you know there's always other people who have been victimized over however long and and um, you know the perpetrator gets away with that um, so it's you know it's they it, they it, it's a very um it's not like i want to 
create or foment a distrust of leaders who are outgoing and charismatic and yeah you know and very charming and stuff like that because that can be part of you know a person's makeup or even god's gifting but yeah um, i i think if we are more willing to see things uh, as they are as opposed to like elson you're saying kind of our preconceived judgments um our preconceived biases um, and i think training's a big part of that it's yeah it is what, what what do you look for or, or and then what do you change in turn you can only you can't change everything about a church that makes potential for for you know interpersonal violence to occur but mm. what things can you do um, even as simple as background checks of course that doesn't get you know take care of everything lots of people slip through background checks but yeah. it's one thing that can be done um, yeah. you know policies of not having just one adult with one teenager for instance that's something also actually uh, following title nine in some contexts <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's it's um looking looking for justice for um, people who have experienced violence like through title nine being you know being one of the ways that, that we have as a protection for that and and to um to to not just try to make up for things that have happened but to try to be preventative yeah in how to keep things in the future uh, from happening as well and i mean so i think part of i mean i think churches kind of going back to the training churches just just even from the standpoint of what i think a lot of church leaders especially men even of my generation i'm you know late 40s now um, would be really stunned to hear statistics as they as they really are for it's i mean because rape still is in the in the popular conception the creepy guy hiding behind the bushes yeah and that happens and it happens a lot and i have friends who've experienced that kind of sexual assault um but 75 80 percent of the time the attacker is is known to the person mm. it is not it is less the person out there that uh we need to be aware of and more the person that's you know already within our circles um that we need to, to be aware of and uh, you know the people who have these controlling tendencies who are controlling and charming at the same time uh, you know who we might see kind of erupt at their partner momentarily uh, and then kind of get themselves together real quick and yeah. then think oh that was weird and then manages our impressions of the incident too <laughs> yeah yeah there's there's i mean we're we are finite human beings and we're only going to catch so many things and i don't think god says you need to know everything about everybody and yeah. feel terrible if if, if you, something slips past past your you know your filter for keeping out folks who are um, sexually violent but at the same time we have a real god-given responsibility to to do better than we have been yeah so in that vein um what are some roadblocks that you see of people that like are you know something horrible happens to them like assault on a campus for instance um what are some roadblocks that they face um in getting justice uh, I think this is true of colleges and and churches. Um, it's it's kind of funny how it doesn't 
doesn't change fundamentally. Um, and that it's true even if, say, the church is known for being very compassionate towards victims and things like that, or if the college is a very, you know, progressively minded liberal value school um, that very much favors, um, you know, women's rights on principle, but protecting the institution is is such a a big often unspoken value mm. for both college and church that it's like, well, we have to keep this from getting out. We don't want, especially in a Christian setting, we don't want Jesus' name to be dragged through the mud. And so we want to keep this kind of hush hush. And so let's, you know, let's kind of deal with this quietly. Um, and maybe we'll even justify it like, well, Joseph um, wanted to, being a righteous man, wanted to, Know, keep things quiet for Mary, and so he wanted to, you know, huh. uh, kind of put things away quietly. And we maybe we'll use that as justification to, to say, well, we're going to dispense with this issue in a, in a, you know, prayerfully, prayerfully silent way. Um, I think institution protecting is is a big part of it, and, and um, we see so, so many cases of of schools, churches just wanting to do that, and so. Um, even very liberal-minded, I have a ton of friends who their assaults took place at big public universities and, um, you know, with, with very vibrant women's studies programs, for instance. And, and, but when it came to their own report of their assault, then they found themselves, even when they were dealing with, not always, but sometimes dealing with very, you know, high-powered feminist women in administration leadership that it was like, well, it really became them versus the institution, and um, so I think that's 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 is that's a barrier. Um, I think part of it too is um, the uh, at least at least on on in Christian schools and faith-based schools. Uh, well, part of the issue is the um, can be the honor codes, mm. right? We I signed the statement when I went to, you know, I signed one of these codes of conduct when I went to seminary. You know, people do it when they go to you know, Bible colleges and things like that. You don't drink, you don't have sex, you don't, you know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and so mm -hmm. there's a hesitancy, I think, on the part of people who are assaulted to come forward because. Mm -hmm say if alcohol was involved or say they had been sexually intimate you know, okay. and involved and the assault took place in that context, then then what happens? Are they going to get in trouble for that? You know, stigma seems to be extra because of that. Am I going to get reported to my parents you know, because of this? Am I going to be suspended? And some schools have really gone to the place of saying, hey, you come forward, you're not going to be punished for all this, you know, any of these other things yeah. that might happen. But I think even with that verbally said, and that's helpful, there's still there's still the environment of oh, you know, I uh, can't come forward and talk about with anybody how, yeah, we had been having sex for a year when uh, one day he decided he just wouldn't take no for an answer, mm. that sort of thing. Or yeah, we, you know, we were throwing back shots of tequila and uh, over there in the dorm, and you know, um, we don't want to get anyone else in trouble. But you know, those those kinds of things can be. 
barriers to. Um, I think just even, I think the conversation um, has to has to continue to evolve. And I think it's probably better than it was, you know, when I was in college 25, 30 years ago. Um, but I think even though student health centers can talk about and put posters out and do education things about, um, about be having um, conversation, if you see something, say something, that sort of thing. But I think um, there has to be even more of an appreciation for and this is difficult, but helping, say, on college campuses, student bodies at large to, um, to not just go through kind of standard, you know, sexual harassment or sexual assault training, like so many colleges, and this oh, yeah. is a good thing. So many schools require freshman students to take like an online sort of- Yeah, and um, employees. Yeah, sort of uh, course that, that deals with some of these issues. and. And that's a good thing. That's a step in the right direction. I'm not demeaning that at all. But I think um, there has to be a real um, but bringing into uh, helping students and administrators and staff to uh, on campuses and true in churches too, just to 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 know how to respond when somebody comes to tell you something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, just even, I mean, and it, 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 this is this is hard because just just getting folks to pay attention to a mandatory online training <laughs> yeah. is is challenging enough. But but to to we have to continue to push so that um, it becomes a just a thing that they are used to. That people in, at school or at church are used to thinking about from the standpoint of if somebody comes to me, whether it's an acquaintance or my roommate or a friend, and says somebody did something to me, and I, or I think I was raped or something like that, that they have some idea what's the first couple of things that you say or don't say yeah. in that setting. Um, because so often it's one of the, you know, first we're shocked and we have no idea what to say. Um, we feel terrible for what's happening, but um, just even from the standpoint of leading with, you know, thank you for telling me, I believe you, and to take steps to, to support them initially in that, as opposed to, are you sure? Oh, you know, and just right, I mean, the, the questioning, and then were you drinking? Um, are, you know, were you wearing that? Things like yeah. that, 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 I mean, that in itself, shuts off a report even before it starts yeah and so then it doesn't go beyond that it's like if even my if even the other women in my small group here at at school um if they aren't believing me then forget it i'm not telling anybody else yeah and uh, that's that's part of the so that there's institutional barriers like protecting the institution but there's also i think generally people just don't know how to respond um how to, you know, when they have a situation like this and somebody's disclosing to them something of this nature and um, they don't know what the resources are because, I mean, these folks aren't, if you're hearing something like this from a friend, um, you're often not going to know how to help them yeah. even though you want to. And so it's like, well, you know, just even folks knowing some resources that they can 
you know, encourage their friend to go seek and support and, and I'll go with you, you know, to stuff like that, that is kind of, I mean, it's not, we don't know how to do that in our society because we um, kind of just don't talk about it enough. Yeah, true. And so, well, that needs to be a societal thing because, right, the CDC says that one out of every, that 19% of American women will experience rape in their lifetimes. Hmm. That's like one out of five almost. That's however many millions of women. And then 44% of American women experience some other form of sexual violence. And some you know, of those 44% also experience rape. And it's like, well, this is so common that it needs to be part of our just growing up that we teach um, people how to have these sorts of at least initial conversations when people disclose to them. And we haven't done that anywhere. Yeah. Um, it's never been you know, something, even in, as part of high school health, that could be something. Uh, when somebody comes to you, it, you know, health is usually, you know, this is how not to get pregnant or get diseases or mm-hmm. <laughs> things like that. But how about when somebody discloses to you um, when something has happened to them, um, what do you do with that? And how do you respond in a way that's helpful and healing? And, um, and so that's kind of a social thing at large. But those are some of the things that I think are blocks and kind of need things yeah. that need to change. So basically, um, so number one, just education. So, I mean, and it's hard when a friend comes to you with an issue that you've just you have no, you're shocked to hear it and you just don't know what to say. And that goes for also, I would say, um, administration, pastors, lay people, you know, it's, it's, you've got that already. And then also you were mentioning um, institutions wanting to save face and that gets into more of a interesting power issue. And it also seems to indicate that, you know, victims being concerned about coming forward. It's not that it's in their head, like, oh no, you know, I think this or that might happen to me, you know, therefore I'll just hide. It's, these are actually real risks, um, both socially and institutionally. Um, I think the men pro- uh, project uh, talks about double abuse and where oftentimes when victims come forward, they are given um, a new form of abuse from the context, um, the social context or group that heaps yeah. blame on them and traumatizes them on another level. Um, and it's usually yeah. not even a one-time thing. It's something they have to now swim in, in their social circles. Um, and yeah. then, yeah, the institutions, like, you know, if, you know, you hear a report and maybe usually they're thinking in terms of, okay, how can we check the right boxes so we don't get sued um, versus how can we actually, you know, give value to this person making a report and actually resolve the situation. Um, I think there's a disconnect in more dysfunctional um, contexts. And of course, there's good stories too, um, where this doesn't happen, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I think, I really tend to think of the whole Me Too movement and, you know, and the things that preceded it. Yeah. Uh, like, the, like the push for, you know, Title IX. Um, that I mean I have I have some friends who've been involved in 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 some of those cases and mm-hmm. I really think all of that um, 
I really think it's a God thing. Yeah. I Amen. really think that God has stepped into this. Why this moment in time? I don't know. But um, well, can you tell people what Title IX is? I just realized we've been referencing sure. it. <laughs> yeah, Title IX is, um, was legislation that was passed, signed by uh, President Nixon back uh, in the early 70s to guarantee equality of rights in education. Um, and it's usually, usually you hear of Title, I mean, up until the last, up until about, you know, seven, eight years ago, the most you ever heard of Title IX was talking about college athletics in mm. terms of e equal opportunity for men's and women's uh, sports in, in college athletics. And, um, but part of that Title IX legislation was guaranteeing um, equal access for um, people regardless of gender in, in, uh, in their institutions. And so it's part of the commitment then it should be of colleges to, if they have a, a student, say a young woman who's been you know, raped, um, then the school needs to protect her access to education and to her opportunities. They need to make accommodations for her so that um, she can still get what she needs uh, not just in terms of survivor services, but but in terms of just still being able to go to class and yeah. and and so um, it accounts for harassment too, not just you know oh I got raped in the parking lot, but other yes. forms of harassment. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it is, it's broader than just um, kind of the more extreme forms of of, of gender based violence, and so schools have a responsibility to to do something about it when. Um, there's somebody who's committed an assault on campus. They have yeah. a responsibility to make sure that the, first the victim gets what she needs, and then also to make sure the, the perpetrator is disciplined in such a way that doesn't continue to happen. And so the, when I talk about Title IX and the more recent push for applying Title IX in college settings with regard to sexual assault, this is more kind of uh, 2012, 2013. It was something that the Obama administration had uh, had really um, pressed colleges on was to say, you know, for so long, these laws have been in the books and so many schools don't really pay attention to yeah. these codes, but you really need to. And uh, we are going to be looking to make sure that y'all are doing that. And that set off a mad scramble among universities um, good. <laughs> several years ago. And it, it's a, it's, it's a good thing. I mean, I know that the whole process has, you know, it's not like it's a perfect process by any means, uh, but like I was saying earlier, it helps to bring in a corrective that wasn't there before because most of the time, whether it's on a college campus or in, out in society at large, uh, people who are rapists, you know, the vast majority never see a day in jail. And uh, so it's, it's like most of them never really face any kind of meaningful justice. And so colleges are expected to provide some sort of protection for victims as well as discipline for uh, perpetrators. Yeah. And I mean, when you don't provide accountability or protection, um, they say, oh, that's perfect. I will keep doing this. And then that's why you get victims. Yeah. And that's part of the enabling thing, that yeah. whether it's a university or a church or whatever, you know, 
the Boy Scouts of America, right? It's all these organizations that that um, have have hush up kinds of things um, that just creates the environment to c continue, even if right the Catholic Church, for instance, and not to beat up on Catholic churches. I think Boz Chavijan says that things may be worse in Protestantism mm -hmm. than in the Catholic Church because of our decentralized nature and our inability to, you know, you know we don't keep records like the Catholic Church does, mm -hmm. um, right? It's it's like, well, let's let's just move this person away from here, um, and that just gives them a chance to victimize people somewhere else. And uh, so, yeah, we we have a system. We've gotten the results that we have from a certain point of view in terms of the outcomes that we have in terms of sexual assault and gender-based violence being so prevalent. Um, it's a, partly a function of just how our society is set up to enable that. And if we don't change, then we're gonna continue to get what we got. All right, so let's see. I'm, I have a couple of um, devil's advocate questions for you, okay. um, which unfortunately um, we've heard all too all too often, and some of them are just generalities. But um, here's one, and I, I think this is a gross distortment of what the Me Too movement is. But um, supposedly, um, the Me Too movement's all about just believing blindly all women without critical thinking. And what would I say to that? Yeah, um, yeah. I when I when I say that we need to give people who come forward the benefit of the doubt. Um, that's I do mean benefit of the doubt. It it does mean that if we go far enough along and we see that hey, there's something really off here, <laughs> yeah, uh, and that there's a history for this person of you know not telling the truth or about exaggerating then uh, that's then justifiably the initial report becomes called into question although i don't think you still dismiss it out of hand but you know it's not that's not a blind believing um and in fact it's like, like i said the the research is pretty thorough and pretty uh, there's been a ton of work done in this area to show that false reporting rarely turns out to be the case anyway so it's it's not a blind believing it's looking at well you know, you, you can't just saying it's 50-50 is already skewing the, yeah. the story when it's more likely, you know, again, 92 to 98% of reports are turn out to be true. And, um, and it's not just for women, it's for men and boys too. Yes, women are victimized at higher rates than, than men are, but it's it's not a gender thing. It's really a, a victim against a perpetrator the perpetrator victim thing and so it, i don't care if it's a woman or a man or somebody who identifies as non-binary who is coming forward with this that um, we need to take them very seriously and to um, and for for me to to say hey i i you totally get my benefit of the doubt um and let's go from here how can i support you and yeah and you know i think there's a lot of contrast there, 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 I think there should be a real contrast drawn between um, legal consequences and um, kind of general sort of social um, consequences as well. Yeah, true. Yeah, most of us are not going to be um, a judge um, right. deciding, 
you know, based off of evidence, if we should put this person in jail. But if you've got someone yeah. that's, you know, has all sorts of tells on abuse and you've got several reports or even one, you know, yeah. you don't, it doesn't take a genius to say, maybe I should take some, I don't know, steps to protect the victim and sure. investigation. Yeah, maybe we don't give them the uh, key to our house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least, right? I mean, we often, in American society, we often appeal to the idea of innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is a, there's a real powerful value in that. It's, that is a good thing. It's, you know, that's part of, yeah. <laughs> that's part of our, you know, protection against, because people, right, we see all kinds of people coming out of jail uh, after doing 30 years for murder they didn't commit, mm. right? And, and that happens. And there's all kinds of, you know, background reasons for some of those things. But um, to, um, to say that, well, innocent until proven guilty, therefore we won't, you know, put restrictions on somebody well, you know, again, like you said, that's a legal construct that it doesn't mean that, for instance, um, Bill Cosby, right, before he, before he was finally convicted a couple of years ago of something, right, now he's doing time. Um, there were, I don't know, I think it was New York Magazine that had a cover with like dozens of his accusers. Gosh. You know? like 60 of them or something like that yeah you know and it's like okay you said they, she said <laughs> right are they all lying you know are they all out to get famous or to get money um i mean the, the consequences on people who come forward is usually huge uh, and who know. wants to become famous for being sexually assaulted abused or exploited i mean i think of monica Lewinsky who um, she came out on a, she did a TED talk and she was a young woman who got, I would say, taken advantage of by someone that was much older, um, yeah. most powerful man in the world. And yeah. her, she, she was on suicide watch for the longest time and her life was ruined. Like she's famous. Um, Rachel Den yeah. Hollander, I don't think wants to be known, you know, for one of the most horrible times in her life. Like right. she had other yeah. aspirations and she didn't need that, you know? Yeah, just looking forward. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's um, we we can give a, a legal presumption of innocence, but at the same time, uh, give a reasoned conclusion um, that you know some of these folks who a lot of folks have said that they attacked me, that that person attacked us, you know that we we it's okay to make a social judgment that that person is, you know, needs to have restrictions put on them in terms of like, you know, their university setting or church setting, or that they don't need to be elected to certain offices yeah. um, based on the flaws in their character. Um, you know, th those are things that, that uh, like you said, it's a devil's advocate position, but there yeah. are people who argue it. And so yeah. I especially hear this on a sports radio, which, yeah. You know, even even intelligent sports radio, which is not it's not always intelligent, but um, right. I mean, under normal circumstances, right now, pandemic notwithstanding, but under normal circumstances, athletes and gender-based violence that comes into the sports news like almost every other day. Yeah. There's something reported, and so you hear talk shows that you know, people calling in. Well, you know, we're innocent until proven guilty, and la di da, and um, that's that's uh, it is 
while it is a devil's advocate position, a lot of people grasp and try to hold on to that, um, especially for their sports heroes. Yeah. Um, especially for maybe their fallen sports heroes. Yeah. You know, it's it's a very hard thing to reconcile people that brought us a lot of joy and who we've seen be brought us joy because the narrative again. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but the, yeah, but at the same time, you know, there's somebody else who's saying this, and maybe multiple people saying that. Yeah. And, um, yeah. All right, here's another one. I mean, they're kind of similar. Um, what about kind of like, this is all just, the Me Too is just a bunch of hype. Um, we didn't really, we don't really have a problem. It's just a few people blowing this out of proportion and making it a huger issue than it really is. Um, <laughs> no, that's... I, I You've already mentioned I, statistics, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I... I... I might, I mean, I, I, no one's ever said that to my face, um, but I, I would at least be curious and wonder, you know, somebody who's saying this, do, do they know somebody who has been, mm. say, sexually assaulted? Um, and if they don't think they do, then they're wrong. Yeah. Um, it, they almost certainly know somebody, but they don't know that they know. Uh, because it is so prevalent, and we can go statistics route, but it's so prevalent that um, there are people all around us every day who've experienced it. Um, but you may not know it. They may not have opened up to you about it. Um, but you almost, almost everybody certainly knows somebody who has been a, who is a survivor of sexual violence just because it happens so often. And so um, if it's overhyped, um, you know, if, if half of, you know, if half of, say, just taking women, yeah, you know, half of America, and you take 44% of them, if almost half of half of America, you know, what's the population of this country? 330 million. If about one-fourth of Americans are going to experience sexual violence in their lifetimes, how many people is that? Is that 75 million? Is that overhype? That's that's kind of where I would go with that, and I would I hope I wouldn't get too too soapboxy. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel myself climbing up on the soapbox here. Yeah, but, I um, used to do camp counseling, just you know, helping with like um, high school, and mm. about two out of five of, and this is just normal conversation. Two out of five of my girls um, had experienced sexual assault, mm. um, and this isn't um, counting of any of the abusive situations that we talked about. This was just okay. people had been straight up sexually assaulted. Yeah, I, it's just so, and I, I mean, one thing I think that, that churches, you know, I, I mean, I spent a lot of time reflecting on what I could have done differently as a minister when I was a pastor. And one thing is just to address it from the pulpit. Yeah. Um, to, to say, to affirm, um, it doesn't even have to be, you know, couched in terms of Me Too or anything, but just to affirm that we see that this is a common experience that affects a lot of people, and therefore even more, there even more loved ones on top of that who are touched by these these uh, incidents, and to to say that God has something to say about this, and God has something to say to survivors um, that. 
he sees it, he hates what happened, mm -hmm. he cares, and he, well, for whatever reason, God chooses not to answer why he didn't stop it. Because Lord knows yeah. millions of survivors have spent those moments where they were being assaulted, praying that God would make it stop. Yeah. But that God is still there, that God does want to heal, that does, God does care, and to to say it from the pulpit and not simply from from the counseling room. And that's mm -hmm. one thing, you know, I in 12 years of ministry, I think I talked about sexual assault once from the pulpit, and it was sort of in passing. Mm -hmm. I, I always avoided those passages that talked about it in the Bible, <laughs> you cool. know. And, and so finally, last year, the church I'm a part of, you know, this little church called Epic in Fullerton, the American Baptist Church, um, you know, uh, talking with the pastor, he wanted to give me an opportunity during sexual you know, violence awareness month to, to talk about. It. So one of the things I, I finally preached on the passage in, you know, the Davidic dynasty of, of um, Tamar and her victimization at the hands of her stepbrother or her half brother, uh, Amnon, and uh, just, you know, what all that was like for her, what all that was like for the family. And to say, God has something to say about this. This is not something that the Bible is silent on. Yeah. This is not something God is silent on. And to say, not only do we care, not only do we care about survivors, but God does too. And he, he sees, he knows, and he is very much wanting to bring healing and hope. Amen. In, in addition to all of that, like preaching it from the pulpit and being open and um, responding to it, um, basically it seems like the posture of any place the church can have an open door uh, or a glass door when this stuff is going on, the better. Um, what does it mean for the church to be involved in the effort for dealing with Me Too in churches specifically? Yeah, and of course preaching, but like in concrete ways. Um, I think I think churches to the degree, and different churches have different resources. Um, larger churches may have access to more professional resources. Uh, I think when churches decide that they want to have more of a conversation and to address these things more openly, um, to acknowledge the societal impact and the, how common these things are, the church also needs to be prepared um, for more people to come forward and to talk about. It may, not, it may not be a zillion people, but there might just be one or two more. But the church needs to be prepared that it's going to touch some people in a profound way Mm. Um, and maybe it's something that happened to some folks 50 years ago. Yeah. And now finally they, after, after suffering in silence for so long, um, now they finally feel like they can, maybe they can talk about it with somebody. So the churches have to be ready for to have folks who can um, they can talk who can talk with them um, who can be confidential and trustworthy 
and also who are aware of the resources in the community, mm. um, perhaps resources within the church, especially if it's a larger church, or research resources, say, denominationally, or just resources in the community to be able to refer out. Because, yeah. I mean, obviously, long-term healing for um, you know, violent trauma is not something that really a lay person can accompany a right. person through that process of healing but just who do you go to to um if you if it if it's to file a report who do you go to um what are the options that you have in terms of you know do you have to go to the police do you not have to go to the police what are the circumstances um who can you talk to in terms of as a therapist yeah that is um experienced in working with these kinds of issues and that you can um, connect with and can help you begin to deal with the trauma as you know it's all bubbling back up to the surface after so many years for instance um, i think that's something that churches need to be prepared to have is just at least uh, who do we refer uh folks to that have experienced these kinds of things yeah. so they can get help in, in a very concrete way um i think um the it would help a church to have some kind of thought out plan ahead of time yeah <laughs> um in terms of when something comes up and it could be that nothing ever does um you know but we know because it's so common it very well could um just to have to have a kind of a plan of who we're going to be the people that are the go-to people here in terms of um and what's this what are the steps going to be uh who is going to um start uh, who's going to inform the board of the church for instance mm. or who is going to um, look after the victims yeah who is going to address the accused and the accused families yeah uh, because very likely they're also in the church and they've probably yeah. been in the church for a while um, who's going to do that and what are those conversations going to look like and um so just to have some kind of a, a, a plan because trying to throw it together on the fly is, <laughs> yeah. is, is hard. I mean, just, but just having some kind of plan, not that that's going to make it easy, but just having some sense of these are the people that will mobilize when we have something like this um, come up in our congregation. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would say kind of more broadly, and I've referred to this earlier, is just you know, kind of more institutionally, um, having more women in leadership, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think will help. Uh, having more um, teaching about not just not just you know sexual violence from the, the as talked about in the Bible, but just even talking about women in the Bible, so that women, right? I mean, we have boys and girls come to Sunday school week after week, and like ninety percent of the stories are about men, um, and mm -hmm. that, right? That's partly because the Bible is male centric from a character standpoint, but to to for even from a Sunday school level, uh, start teaching boys and girls about the women of the Bible. Um, you know, even if they don't have a whole book named after them, there's something we can learn about their stories. And so, for for people growing up, and then for people who are already grown up, to to be seeing having this constant reminder that God values women um, as much as He does men, 
And so women's voices need to be heard with the same authority and appreciation as men's voices do too. I think that yeah. would, those things would help as well, kind of from more uh, you know, organizational standpoint. Yeah, and that's what I think, yeah, like you were saying, is really behind the believing women and listening, you know, to women in these reports. And um, I think a lot of leaders kind of think in terms of, yeah, listening, meaning I'm going to make sure that you feel heard, you know, rather than I'm actually going to take your report seriously and make sure something is quote, done about it, like in reality. <laughs> yeah, and, and to just... It, no, no incident of you know, gender-based violence comes without major consequences for the people involved or for the folks who are close to them. And, yeah. Um, it, yes, it will be disruptive. And to some degree, you know, I that does speak kind of Nick what you were talking about earlier about you know how seriously we view sin um the the consequences of sin are are, are immense in in these situations that it's, it's it touches so many lives mm. it rips you know bonds and relationships apart um you know people leave churches and all kinds of you know it is disruptive um and that's part of the fallenness of it all and that's um, why the preventive stuff that we can do can hopefully help to make a, a church or a college or whatever any organization stronger um, to try to prevent these things from happening because um, I mean I think every sin is equally we don't want to condemn some sins less or more uh, but in terms of their consequential impact um there's not too many things more consequential in terms of sin than these in terms of earthly consequences and and so um yeah to to be willing to accept i think institutions need to be willing to accept that you know we didn't ask for this um uh, but it happened and we are going to do right by the people who've been impacted we're going to make sure that they're taken care of and we'll make sure that the other people are protected. Um, it's, it's, I, I wouldn't say it's God testing, but it is an opportunity to show quality. Yeah. But, uh, we, we're going to, we're going to be obedient to God in this situation. Yeah. And this is what it's going to look like. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us and uh, talking about it. It's a difficult, sure. subject, but we appreciate it. <laughs> Um, it is, but it's um, it's so necessary, and I really appreciate all the folks who I've learned from over the years who've helped me to. It's been like scales falling from my eyes, mm. um, especially early on, the first couple of years after I left my last pastorate, as I got to know more people, both believers and folks from other faith backgrounds. Um, who you'd say are, you know, from either feminist sympathizing or, you know, self-identifying feminists that um, they have been patient with me and my questions and my sort of ignorant things that I've said. Um, 
And so I, I kind of come back to that and try to remind myself that, you know, I was not that long ago in the seat of people like, you know, average male Christian leader in a church mm. who, you know, sympathetic, compassionate, wanting to do the right thing, not knowing what best to do. And um, so that helps me to come back to just, I want to be humble from the standpoint of God has done a work for me and helping me to understand um, how I can be different, how I can be more of God's healing hands in uh, these situations. And so I can patiently educate others too. Great. Thank you so much. And we may have to have you on for another topic one day. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be fun. Yeah, I was like, you, you do for, a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Thank thanks you. Thanks for the good combo. Yeah, yeah sure. See yeah. ya.